I just know to trust my instinct. When something sticks out, I make a note. And at the moment, they're really heavily rooted in early ideas of anarchy, which I love the idea of the juxtaposition of my velvets and the trimmings, and it's all very friendly and pink. But actually, the ideas that I'm talking about are ideas that traditionally people have been very frightened of, and that are usually spoken to by people in balaclavas and wearing black. But actually, a lot of these phrases are deeply entrenched in early ideas of anarchism. I'm Zach Foster. And you're listening to Seamside, the show where we explore the inner work of textiles. And today, we sit down with banner maker and calligraphist, Alice Gabb. Seamside would not be possible if it weren't for the generous folks over at the Quilty Nook. If you're enjoying this show and would like to support my work, why not head on over to the Nook and join us? And who knows, maybe you'll find some inspiration and creative community while you're there. Okay, it's that part of the show where I read one of my favorite reviews, and this one comes from somebody named All the Nicknames Are Taken. And they want you to know that they are seeing radical possibilities in Seamside. In the review, they went on to say that they are seeing the best kind of big, deep, generous, enthusiastic art talks. They say, I don't even know how to sew, but I love these talks. If that resonates with you and you're enjoying it, would you write me a kind review kind of like that? It is the best way us humans can game the podcast algorithm and get Seamside moved to the top of the list. I really would appreciate it. I have a quick special announcement for you. In this conversation, Alice mentioned that she's putting together a lecture on the radical histories of banners. And lucky for us, she's agreed to meet with us on the Nook coming up on September 20th, 2023 to share this presentation. If that's something you'd be interested in, click on the free trial link in the show notes below to join us. And if you're listening to this from the future, don't worry. There will be a recording of Alice's talk also available on the Nook if you'd like to learn more. Now, I grew up in Southern Baptist churches, sitting through long sermons and studying the banners hung around the sanctuary. Those hours spent as a young person put down some kind of roots into my creative core that would come to bear fruit several years later as an adult art and meaning maker. Alice Gabb's work fully embraces the lineage of the banner, but from an entirely different source of origin, the social protest movements of the last century. Her creative path is founded in years of calligraphy. And so in many ways, it was a natural and short leap to start making these banners. In this conversation, Alice joins us from her new studio in East London, and we explore gathering poetry from everyday life, using color to tame the hearts and minds, and maintaining joy in the face of a long, protracted struggle. I hope you enjoy How to Act Up with my new friend, Alice Gap. Alice, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. I'm super excited to be here. Me too. You know, Jess Bailey recommended that you and I talk, and I often find that talking with friends of friends are some of my favorite conversations because I don't really know you, but like, I love Jess, so I know I'm going to love you. Yeah, there's a really gorgeous intersection of, of mine and Jess's interests. So yeah, I loved her episode on this. So Alice, before we dive in too deep, can you paint the picture for us? Where are you at right now? So I'm in East London in Hackney in a relatively new studio. It's like a Victorian warehouse and 
my area of the studio that I share with a few others is like piled high of velvets and fringings and trimmings and the walls are covered in paintings of flowers that I found on the street <laughs> and books about protests and calligraphy equipment everywhere. People are quite shocked when they come in because <laughs> it's so, it's very grandma-esque, which I think people think isn't in fashion, but I don't believe in such limitations. I like what I'm seeing. If that's grandma, that's grandma. One of my favorite all-time quilters lives in East London, Russell James Barrett. Have y'all ever crossed paths? So my knowledge of quilters is really poor, but so yeah, I haven't, but I'm slowly being educated by Jess. Yes. Well, we're going to make sure you at least know each other on Instagram. Amazing. He's a cool kid. So Alice, ultimately, the reason I want to talk to you is because I, as you see in my work, I love using text in my quilts and the textile pieces that I make. And you do a lot of that too with your banners. But that's not really where your journey started, right? You're, you started with calligraphy. And mm. I love that because my mom was a calligrapher. Maybe it still is in her heart of hearts. You know, I remember when I was a kid, my earliest creative memory was my mom sitting at the kitchen table. She has one of those boards that you can fold up at like a 45 degree angle, right? And yeah. she was practicing her strokes like over and over the same stroke to get it just the way she wanted it. And so from a young age, I had the sense of practice and discipline yeah. is worth the time you put into it. Yeah. I can't believe your mom was a calligrapher because I there's, there's not that many of us. <laughs> so yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. It's a beautiful art form to me to think about how can we take words and make them visually stunning, make you want to read them. So I'm looking forward to kind of picking your brain on the intersection mm -hmm. of that a little bit. What Do you have an early memory of words, of like the visual presence of words? I really don't, but at the same time, if I look back at any project that I've ever done, whether it was school or university, I did graphic design at university, which was, I was more in the kind of print school and making like illustrated books and things and letterpress that kind of printmaking vibe but all of across my studying it was all word-based artists so I've just always been drawn to that so it makes complete sense how I've ended up in two art forms that are just completely centered around lettering do you ever get tired of words being everywhere do you ever get word fatigue especially when that when there was that heavy period maybe we're still in it like positive affirmations on instagram <laughs> that really was like oh i was like oh god like this is the end of this is the end of my love of text-based art but I, it's still strong it's still strong and i reckon if it's if it's still here now after the live laugh love you know section i reckon we're good it will be forever Hashtag blessed. <laughs> no, no shade to anyone that orders that on a banner from me. <laughs> well, I ask because I often feel that like if I'm on a long road trip, for example, and I'm driving down the highway, like my eyes can't help but read every piece of text on mm. any bumper sticker, billboard, whatever it is. Like there's something about text that I feel like our brains just want to figure out. Like our brains, at least my brain, 
mm. never gets a pass. Like if there's text in front of it, my brain wants to try to riddle it out. Yeah, I, I'm just always looking at, I think lettering style is like defined and like at its most successful when you have really strong opinions about details and typefaces. So I am constantly noticing what I like, what I don't like and storing that, logging it for later. That kind of has been a success of my calligraphy because there was a real boom around 2014, I'd say, in what I would call modern calligraphy, which is the the type of calligraphy that, that I do most. And mine is just so, it's always described as perfectly imperfect. I love the, the charm and the human and the, I guess, the queering of it all. I'm always, always looking at tiny, tiny details and yeah, thinking about them for another day. So one thing that stands out to me about your calligraphy work and then also your textile banner making work is that there's a noted difference in the two scripts, the two letterings, the two typographies, right? Like your your calligraphy is perfectly imperfect <laughs> and your banners are a pretty fixed sans serif, all caps, equally spaced kind of type, right? So how how do both of those, how do you hold both of those in your practice? Mm, to me, there's such a strong thread running between the two but I think that's why I'm so drawn to the banners I was asked recently whether I would ever do calligraphy style on a banner and the answer is no I wouldn't even consider it I'm really interested in the communication of a banner calligraphy is a decorative decadence it's you don't read an essay in calligraphy these days you call it spot calligraphy it's where you do a heading or um, something like that but the banners, they are about immediacy. They're about communicating an idea. And the typeface that I've chosen to use has a long legacy of being used in socialist kind of writing or publications or propaganda posters. And it's just, I'm carrying forward that piece of history, I guess. And I just find it really beautiful. It's, it's a typeface that it's heavily, heavily influenced as well by an early Quaker banner for the suffragette movement in like early 1900s that said, blessed are the peacemakers. And the context of having women carrying that and the legacy of peace campaigning within the UK, that banner was made in an era where union banners and protest banners were flooded with like really ornate Victorian styles that were kind of made by a team of artists and looked like Victorian postcards and were really, really elaborate. And this banner just says in text, just like mine, blessed are the peacemakers. And I just love that so much. And that, yeah, that's how Jess knew of my work in the first place because she saw the connection between those two banners. And that's how we got talking. Yeah. And that banner, we'll get an image of it in the show notes for folks that want yeah. to see it. And I have a feeling for a lot of people, it'll be a, a familiar image, which is really, yeah. it is a sweet image. Is So this is a particular typeface that you're using or is it kind of just styled after the ones that you mentioned on this banner and the different socialist banners? No, no, it is, the ty it is that typeface. And I have several templates of of it in various sizes, but not like actually quite a limited amount 
So I really love the limitations of that. And every banner that I make is slightly different. So constantly working with the limitations of that and filling the space. I guess that's harking back to the days of me doing letterpress and the way that you space letters. Yeah, there's certain fixed elements, right? But Mm -hmm. then you play around with the, the flexible variables of the space of the banner and things like that. I want to think for a moment about the tactile side of all of this. How does working with fabric for you, as someone who's spent a lot of time working with paper, how do they feel different? Oh my God, they're so different. Calligraphy is, as you like, I really loved hearing that description of your mum practicing because that is exactly how calligraphy is. Like, even though you're, I don't know what your mum was doing, whether she was just practicing or preparing for a job, but that is the way that you start every piece of lettering no matter what you're doing and no matter how long you've done it for you practice doing those shapes again and again and again and it warms up your hand and it's about patience and there's no there's no rushing it you can't try and cheat the (laughs) cheat the system and everything about it is is small and neat and controlled and now I'm making these enormous banners with no technical sewing training or background or any family history of sewing. And that's been a huge learning curve. I recently did a workshop for London Craft Week and that was really intimidating because I will get people on that on, in that class that are technically much more skilled than I am. I've done it for seven years now making these banners and prior to that I worked in many many studios part-time where sewing was part of the job I've always been a maker but it was it was making studios where they also didn't kind of care about total perfection and it was just about the joy of making things and so yeah it's definitely a totally different beast making these banners but it there's definitely the patience is so transferable. I'm full of patience. Yeah, imagine there's quite a bit of overlap there between the discipline of the what it takes to warm up the hand of to do the calligraphy strokes and then also the discipline to get all those stitches down. Are you doing these by hand or on machine? Yeah, I I now have um I so I started making them. I came back from America, a trip to America and started making these banners just as a side project to my calligraphy work and I was making them on a sewing machine that I was bought when I was 12 by my mum for Christmas and I had played around in it a little bit. I've always loved fabric and textiles and always collected textiles for no, you know, I couldn't make anything with them so I'd never, I didn't know what I was collecting them for and then I came back and used them to make these banners and then that became my job. Now I do more banners than I do calligraphy. And I was using this tiny old Toyota sewing machine. So now I've upgraded slightly and I have a huge kind of industrial jack H2, which is terrifying, but cuts through. I use like upholstery weight fabrics. So it needs to, it needs to be able to cope with leather essentially. So yeah, that's, that's what I'm using now. Incredible. I didn't even know. <laughs> Toyota made sewing machines. No, they actually. So that's, my that's why I had. That was why I was forced to upgrade because when I took it to shops, they were like, "We can't replace anything." 
he didn't finish because I'm 36, I think. And yeah, they were they were like, this is not possible anymore to to fix this. I took a yeah, I took one of my early sewing machines to the shop. Mm, this would have been like probably a decade ago now because I've been quilting for 12 years, so this is pretty early on in the journey. Yeah, and so I took it to the old neighborhood sewing repair shop. And it, it was just a basic sewing machine, you know, like real entry level. And the guy just takes one look at it. He says, I don't fix toys. Yeah. I was like, oh, my God, I was terrified. I was so just like embarrassed and like, I understand. And I just took my machine and left. I can't bear it. I know. He's this old dude. You, he's <laughs> Listen, he's old school. He's old school. He runs his shop the way he wants to run his shop. And I've actually been back by. I took him when I got my grandmother, the one who is now 107 years old, when she gave me her sewing machine that had been like boarded up for 30 years. The last thing she would have sewn on it would have been baby clothes for me and my brothers. When I got her machine, it had been boxed up for so long I wanted to get it, you know, you know, I just want to give it a little juiced up. So I took it back to the same guy. And when he saw that machine... It was like hard eyes. Like he was just so like all the gruffness was gone. He's like, this is a machine. I'm like, I know. It's a good one. <laughs> oh, that showed him. That's right. That's right. So let's go back. You mentioned that you came to the U.S. and then got inspired to go back home and make Banner. Can you can you talk a little bit about your experience here in the U.S.? Yeah, I was 30 and it was when I, my calligraphy career was kind of really taking off and I was part of a network of calligraphers that were very much based in the US because it's, it was much bigger there than it was in the UK. It was, we were just kind of following on from them. And so I did a call out if anyone would have this, this English person to come and stay and that I would just help assist in their studios. That was my kind of selling point I was like I'll come in I can like pack orders or I can yeah if I can come and stay and I didn't think anyone would say yes but four people said yes from all over America and they didn't want me to help them in their studio they wanted me to teach them how to teach calligraphy because I was running workshops pretty successfully at the time in London and so that's what I did I went to stay all over and I was very tired by the end. It it was just, it felt very palpable, the politics at the time. It wasn't just that Trump was being inaugurated. It was also that Brexit was happening in the UK. And I made my way around America and ended up in Oakland. And I was sat in a bar that was an old music hall. And I noticed a banner that said, Universal Toleration. And for something that was clearly old, like it was clearly over a hundred years old, I just thought that like that lettering just stuck out so much to me, that phrase. And there had been many, many bits of language that I had been playing over in my mind the whole time I was there. No justice, no peace, not my president. Like these phrases were just kind of floating around, but I really couldn't see how I could how that would work with my calligraphy career. Like I just couldn't see how that was relevant or it just wasn't the right format. And so I saw this banner and I just was like, this is it. This is, I started researching where that phrase came from. 
And I was pretty shocked when I found out that it was from a mutual aid group in England, from Manchester. I made an exhibition when I got back of language surrounding that group. Their founding values were friendship, love and truth. And yeah, I just, in a time where everything was just so heated and divided, I was just really drawn to like community outside of a church and outside of government. And now I make banners full time. You just never know which way life's going to take you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, similarly, I had been making quilts for at least five years in 2017. And I hadn't really been using much text at all in my textile work. But I remember for the Women's March, the same one, but the one in New York, I found a piece of like yellow foam core that somebody was throwing away and I had some blue painter's tape and I'm like, oh, this will make a nice sign. And I thought about what to say and I would love to hear your thoughts on gathering the little poetic snippets that you use. But I found myself thinking, okay, the phrase I want is the future belongs to the loving. Oh my God. And so I ripped out all these little pieces of tape and arranged them just so on the foam core. And that was what I carried for the Women's March in 2017. And it was a galvanizing moment for so many people. And it, I, I think when we look back on the great trajectory of our creative lives, we'll see that a lot of us had pivots around that year. Yeah, yeah. I, I was in Phoenix for Arizona for the Women's March. I was staying with a family that had let me come and stay to help teach calligraphy. And there hadn't been any discussion of it beforehand, but they happened to be very strict Mormon family. And so they were vehemently against the march. But we had really connected when I stayed. And there was just this really loving act where it was not questioned when I said that I wanted to go. And we lived like half an hour drive away from the march. And, and the person that had me to say was just like, I'm taking you, no, no problem at all. I'll take you and I'll pick you up. And it was just such, it was so loving. And I, yeah, I really won't forget that. They're actually coming to London next month and I can't, I can't wait to see them. I think that's an incredible example of the kind of moment that I personally want to cultivate more of in my life and in this world, which is in that space beyond rhetoric and in that space beyond uh, meme speak and in that space beyond we would consider what we would label politics, right? Because mm. folks have their views, but we can also still find meaningful connection in ways that are really rich and really nuanced, like the ones you just shared with yeah. this family in Phoenix. It really tested me on that level because at the same time as we had this beautiful connection and I had a great time, I also didn't feel safe enough to tell them that I was queer. And I also didn't feel like that would, at the time, I actually wonder whether that's changed since, but at the time, I don't think that would have gone down very well. And so that was also this re really heavy, heavy weight of yeah, I can find these beautiful things, but at the same time, does their deep beliefs mean that me and my friends wouldn't be able to coexist here, like safely? I don't know. I wonder whether we'll get to talking about that when when they come over, because now, like, I, they didn't know I was queer, but 
now they do <laughs> because I put, I put it on my banners and I don't need I'm not staying in their home anymore I don't need to don't need to hide that so yeah who knows well and this is a thing I think a lot about too is that in cultivating these kinds of relationships that really just kind of stretch us mm-hmm. you know philosophically mm-hmm. politically or whatnot like I think it's unreasonable for us to expect that we're going to have the same kind of friendships, warm fuzzies, and comfort with mm-hmm. someone when we're already so stretched, like when we're already doing a lot of work just to cross the divide. Mm. You know, it's I don't even know if that's something we can aim for. I want everybody to feel safe, of course, but I just don't know if we'll feel comfortable in every relationship that we're going to have, especially ones where we're trying to cultivate very intentionally a different kind of dynamic. Yeah, so true. I would like to ask you, so when when... When I'm thinking about text in my work, it almost feels that, I mean, I guess it varies by project, but it almost feels that like choosing the language is 75% of the work. And then the actual construction of what the project's going to look like is the remainder, right? I feel like the words, the precise wording is so important. How do you go about thinking about language in your work. What what kind of filter, what kind of algorithm do you have in your own mind? What's your calculus for selecting the right piece of poetry? Firstly, like never a juror word spoken. I feel that so deep. People say to me like, this is like, because so my banner making, I, I get to make some occasionally that are just for me or just for a project where maybe it's going in an exhibition or it's going to be rustled and it's to raise money. It can be where it's my voice. And I think those have been the most successful ones personally, that the ones people want to talk about are the ones where I've chosen the wording. So mostly I'm working with texts that other people have chosen and they frequently are like, this is like choosing a tattoo. Like this is on that level of like weight and importance. Especially because, you know, the banners, the way that they're made, the structure of them, they're supposed to last forever, a lifetime and many other lifetimes, hopefully. So there is that like permanence about it and people, you know, want it to stay relevant and be super important. So, yeah, I've like, I actually think it's more than 75%. I am just always, always on the lookout. I, my life now is considering I'd never been to a protest before the women's march my life now seems deeply entrenched in only protest and so I'm always looking for language there although I notice I notice as like politically things are becoming extremely fraught in the UK and often protests are sudden like emergency protests like Brianna Gay was a young trans girl that was killed in a park a few months ago and like these last minute these sudden protests are called and the language reflects that time if people even have banners and signs and placards which often that isn't even that I've noticed more and more using of flags that because that's kind of all all you need in that space is is uh, like with as in the spectrum of queer flags the pride progress flag and the trans flag aside from that also like i read and read and read and read about protest history and that's not so much to do with work that's to do with my activism i just know to trust my instinct when something sticks out 
I make a note. And at the moment, they're really heavily rooted in early ideas of anarchy, which I love the idea of the juxtaposition of my my velvets and the trimmings, and it's all very friendly and pink. But actually, the ideas that I'm talking about are ideas that traditionally people have been very frightened of and that are usually spoken to by people in balaclavas and wearing black, you know. But actually, a lot of these phrases at the moment are deeply entrenched in early ideas of anarchism. So um, necessity knows no, no law at the moment, something I love, and recreation and hope, and a life, a life rooted in dignity. And that's a phrase recently. I, I've got all sorts of notes just written around my desk. There's one here that just says prisons are a social crime. So there's like, there's a whole there's a whole load, and there's there's also like the spectrum of why where you'd want to read that. Often these these phrases might not be suitable to have on somebody's wall. I'm obsessed with Marley Grace's "No Rules, No Rulers" to do with quilting. I just think that's so that really fits in with my <laughs> my list of of phrases at the minute. I also love that phrase of Marley's, and find myself quoting Marley to to people quite a bit. Yeah, and I put a second part on it for myself which is where there are no rules there can be no cheating Ooh. right which is just ultimate permission giving yeah and there's one that also sounds like that which is order without orders i like that one too so yeah it's just slowly collecting these things and noticing themes around them they often cluster into two or three lists and some of them make really beautiful sentiments and some of them are more serious and they will go on a protest banner maybe or you know something that doesn't need to be on somebody's wall I have to keep making time for that I'm so grateful because I just asked to do a banner together against the don't say gay bill in the US and I just made it say gay okay I didn't think it was, I didn't want it to say, don't say gay. Like it was for that, that, that bill that was, I didn't want to have that message on the wall, but it just, yeah, it was supposed to be silly and fun. And I love the opportunity to kind of sneak in, sneak in like what I'm researching, what I'm reading about at that time, which if I leave it too long of taking other people's commissions, I get a bit lost in all of that. And I was so lucky to be able to do that full time as a job, but it's especially because I, I do a talk now called the radical, a radical history of banners. And I do want to remind, keep reminding people that, that these are rooted in like stories and struggle and, and political history. Well, that's one thing, Alice, that I had on my notes of things to talk to you about after the show, which is I would love for you to consider coming to talk to us on the Nook about the oh, radical history of banners. So. I would love that so much. Yeah, so let's, yeah, let's circle back to that afterwards for sure. So you're kind of like this artistic magpie. You're flying around. You're catching all the shiny bits, this little phrasing here, this piece of language here. You're writing your notes. You say you have two or three kind of lists going, which I imagine you're referencing, you know, occasions and contexts in which these phrases might fit in. What there's something about the act of sewing it down, which is very different than, like you said, an, an emergency action where somebody has called together and ever, you know, everybody just needs to show up now. Yeah. 
you respond in the moment one way, but when you have time to really think about something and then commit it to fabric stitch by stitch, it needs to have a, the message needs to have a different lifespan, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. There's, in London at the moment, there's been this series of, series of events called Drag Story Time. Do you have them in America? Oh, and it's a hot topic here too. Okay. So there's been lots of pushback to Drag Story Time taking place. And so there's been counter protests to the protest or the pushback. And so I got to make this really lovely banner. They're always in the same venue in South London. And so this banner just simply says, Lewisham loves trans people. And it will now be used for, you know, all the rest of the the protests that happen there. And I just love how that's just so immediate. And there's nothing, like, obviously I hold so much space for really like especially that phrase that you said that you held up at the march like that's just so beautiful and thoughtful but sometimes like i just love the simplicity of of, of lotion love trans people so yeah i really loved making that one one banner one phrase that you've used that i find myself thinking a lot about this past week Mm. is joy is not to be made a crumb Mm, yeah, I can't speak to that too much because that was a commission, but I know that that's from is it Mary Oliver. Th- that is one of my favorite banners because it doesn't happen very often where you can play with the typeface sizes. And that one I could, and I was so excited. I talk about joy a lot within my work and within activism. It's such a heavy, heavy topic that I'm often reading about and being like being involved in various movements. And, you know, today one of my friends is on trial and it's just heavy a lot of the time. And I don't like I'm really genuinely careful to keep joy. Like I I run a protest drumming group and I'm part of an activist choir and all these things where, uh, you know, I just don't want it to be a constant slog. I have to keep I have to keep that joy and that hope. So, yeah. I I do really resonate with that phrase. It's interesting because I just got an email last night from a person I'm friendly with. You know, I used to go to Quaker meetings. You mentioned that Quaker Mm, banner earlier. mm -hmm. I was like, ding. Back before the pandemic, I was a long time I was going to Quaker meetings here in Brooklyn. And there was a person there that I was always really friendly with. Afterwards, we chat all this because the Quakers have like a little snack bar after meeting. It's really cute. We love. And just got an email from her and she finds herself in quite a bit of a fix because she you might have heard about this. There's been this series of actions taking place around the world targeting museums and galleries and pieces of art. And she, along with one of her collaborators, went into the National Gallery in D.C. and smeared red and black paint all over Degas' little dancer statue. Uh, not the statue itself, but the plexiglass around it, right? The statue, the yeah, art yeah. is fine. Yeah. Um, but now she is being charged with something like conspiracy against the United States yeah, government and yeah. a half million dollar fine and 10 years in jail. And I'm yeah. like, Let, let's uh, attack the messenger here is what's happening as opposed yeah. to actually dealing with climate change, which is what she was trying to get yeah. people talking about. Yeah, it's exactly this. It's actually it's so interesting how ser- how similar the consequences are, because in the UK, I think we like to think that we are these absolute pinnacles of democracy and we hear stories like that and we think, oh, that that's the US for you. And actually, we are exactly the same. Yeah, the, the consequences are so high and people are more interested in talking about how outraged they are 
rather than why these people would have taken that action. I got really lucky. My case was dropped. I blocked an Amazon warehouse in on Black Friday in 2021. And in America, you're so, I think you're, you've got Chris Smalls leading the Amazon Labor Union. Like, I feel like it's really well known, the, the evils of Amazon as a corporation. Whereas in the UK, that was kind of a fringe thing to do. And it's so exciting that since then, like we have our own unions within Amazon now. And yeah, it's all kicking off. It's, it's a tricky space activism right now. It is. And I've been reading, I'm in the middle of reading Begin Again, which is a, a reflection on James Baldwin. And the the writer keeps going back to this Baldwin's idea of the big lie, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think probably pertains equally to the US and to the UK, which is we see ourselves as these bastions of, of freedom and democracy. Mm-hmm. Yet at the same time, we have these really uh, historic and demonstrable and present day examples of actions that are anti-democratic and anti-freedom. Oh, yeah. And we got to find ways to become the best versions of ourselves that we can be. I'm, I'm thinking on a national level, of course, like how do we be the best America? How do we be the best UK? Mm. And if we want to claim the banner of we are the freest place and we are the paragon of what democracy looks like, well, how do we authentically live that out and make that mm. happen for us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... It's so important to keep thinking about, I think, the the long vision, the imagination, the like, what is the fight all for? What, like, I made these huge banners, the 16 meters long, and they said, dare to dream of a world beyond capitalism. And the other one said, believe in our collective imagination. And like, I really genuinely, we have to think beyond what we have now so much existed prior to these systems and so much more is possible yeah it takes me back to that phrase a system centered around mutual recognition of dignity and it's so basic but at the same time it's so far away right now and and we have to put it into words as basic as it is because it doesn't exist yeah. for everyone yeah in all places yeah right? yeah it sounds obvious but the reason we have to say this because it's not happening yeah so Alice, one thing I would love to hear from you about is people often will come to me and say, oh, I love the work that you're doing with your textiles, right? That I'm doing so much right now, creating a body of work that I'm calling Southern White Amnesia, which is exploring the kinds of stories that Southern white families tell and don't tell about their own family history, mm-hmm. which can lean political if you know you want to put that label on it. So people see me engaged in this kind of work and they often wonder like, oh, your work is so meaningful, they say. It's like, how do I how do I do that? How do I make my work mean something? Mm. And that's such a beautiful question. It gets mm. at the heart of so much. And I wonder what you would tell someone who feels like what they're currently doing now in their creative practice, just like it hasn't found its center yet. Like how would you, how would you advise somebody to ground their practice who wants to make it more meaningful? Yeah, I guess it's a really big question. But when I think about the trajectory of my work, I when I started to think about things in the early days, so even the phrases that I was collecting, I was like, oh, well, you know, everybody would would collect these phrases. I'm not kind of special. But you have to kind of really lean into what you're attracted to and that you care about because it's not the same as everybody else. It is probably completely unique. And 
the combination of what it is that you care about and the way you like things to look is probably, again, even more unique. What you're drawn to in terms of that mixture between meaning and aesthetic. And I don't know, I this is all so new to me, like activism. It's been six or seven years. And I know I've said it before, but I guess also patience because everything that I've learned about previous movements, whether it's Black Panthers or Green and Common or the ACT UP movement and the climate movement now, which is where I started, it's so easy to be swept up in immediacy because it is an immediate problem and it it is urgent. But at the same time, this is a long game and I think it's wise to stick to your, like really think about what it is that you can offer a movement. Everybody has skills and the ones that are the most uh, overlooked, I think sometimes are just people that are super friendly that can make tea or can do the accounts or really good on social media or like, it's actually not the people attached to something about to be arrested it's all of the people sorting through the emails for someone that's in prison there's 50 roles for every arrestable person and I think going into these spaces little by little having patience with not being super involved in the very first time just watching and finding your place and finding community all of that is so, to me, that that worked. I ended up going to about a year's worth of meetings before I found my place. And I don't think a lot of people would have stuck that out. And that has been, I'm so glad that I had the kind of quiet, the quiet long game in mind because I've made a lot of friends. And now I know a lot of people in a lot of different movements and being able to offer banners is just, I'm not very good at organizing actions and there's many parts of activism I'm not naturally good at but to be able to offer people a banner is a really beautiful thing get in where you fit in yeah and there's so much power and just when it comes time to to show up there's so much power in just being a physical presence in a space you don't have to be the one on the bullhorn you don't have to be the one on the front lines just being a warm human body who says I care about this thing yeah it's so important and and when I look back, I'm reading about past movements. Even in the 90s in the UK, there were huge protests against a road, a new road network that was going to happen. That's happening now. And there's like 200 people on a good day at a protest camp. And overnight, there will probably be maybe 10 people. When I'm reading about these things pre-social media in the 90s, there would have been 20,000 people on a Saturday and there would have been hundreds of people staying overnight. And times have just changed so much and we are overwhelmed and overloaded. And I understand all of that. But also I really, as exactly as you say, do not underestimate how important it is to take your body somewhere. It counts. And yeah, especially there'll be many varying levels of privilege. But if you have the time and energy and money, like definitely go. go. I went to protest alone for years which again, people might not feel safe doing that. I love crowds and I'm very tall, but it didn't stop me going. And I'm, yeah, I'm grateful for that. It's paid off now. And similarly, on the flip side of that coin, I found it really helpful to have a protest buddy. Like I had a good friend, they've moved away now, but 
she would write me or I would write her when we heard about something, be like, you going? And like, we just knew we couldn't say no to each other. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you're going, I'm going. If I'm going, you're going. And there, there was that, just this kind of magnetism to stay like stuck to the center, right? To, to really stay focused on what's important. Honestly, that's so glorious. Like, I just, I, I mean, if I had that person, I would have, I would have been so down. But at the time, I didn't really know anyone that cared about activism, which seems unbelievable now. But yeah, as you said, you can't say no. It's and it, again, it brings joy into what potentially can be an unknown situation. Dealing with police, there's so much unknown on a protest day, and I always get this real feeling beforehand of like, I'm not sure I've made the right decision. I'm not even going to find the protest. I bet it will be over by the time I get there. I get all these feelings every single time. And then I see the crowd and it just like all evaporates and it just feels so, there is nothing like that feeling of just, and people will say, you know, what does protest change? I get that all the time. But you just, just to be part of that and connect with people and connect with the cause is just really important. One answer to what does protest change is it creates a visible manifestation for everyone in the community to see that this issue really matters, that maybe they should slow down and consider it a little bit. And two, like there's this incredible like mycelial underground network that's happening when you show up to a protest because you're going to meet somebody, you're going to get a flyer for another event. Something's going to happen that gets you more deeply and authentically rooted into that community that will have dividends in the future moving forward. Yeah, that's to use a capitalist term. <laughs> that's been entirely my that's been entirely my experience because not everything is on social media either. You will just get a little flyer posted to you and uh, maybe that one time that was for that was for an anarchist picnic I think and it yeah, it was just so gorgeous just watching everybody share food and hang out. It doesn't all have to be somber. It can there's so many great connections to be made. We can be dead serious and joyful at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Two things can coexist, definitely. Now, we can't wrap up this conversation. Jess would have a fit, I'm sure, if I didn't ask you about your relationship to the color pink. I think when I, when I look back and research about various movements a lot, within the UK, I'm talking about a lot of the kind of protest camps and the frontline activism was kind of very cis male. And anyone that is involved in any kind of anti-fascist movement in the UK, I have, I have so much respect and I understand that especially these days why black is required, you know, clothes that make you invisible. Everybody has to mask up because they're filming all the protests and anonymity is, is, is safety now. I mean, that's too late for me on that front. Like I've, I've already had my DNA taken in a police station and I'm on social media. Like I kind of can't get around that now, unfortunately. So I like, there is something deeply de-escalating about showing up in all of my best cardigans. It makes me laugh looking back at photos, but me at that Amazon warehouse in my red beret, a bright pink knitted jumper, and I was wearing my grandmother's yellow fisherman's jacket, which she would have absolutely hated if she was alive for me wearing that. It can be so de-escalating wearing just fun knitwear and loads of colors. And it just brings a different energy, a different 
a different vibe. And I use that in my work. I'm talking about deeply serious things, but also it doesn't mean that they can't be really beautiful and tender and soft. And I'm totally okay with those two things coexisting. And some of my banners are ridiculously kind of queer and full of satins and like quilted satins, which I love so much. And yeah, I just... I'm unapologetic about that and I'll I'll keep doing it. So you might see me at a protest because I'll be, I'll be easy to spot. I love that so much. Alice, if you had to make a first pass at answering this question, how has working with fabric made you more human? What has been the inner work of fabric in your own life? Oh my God. I mean, with everything that I've said, like you can, you can see that it's like working on the banners and, and, diving into this kind of lineage of why people use use banners to, and fabric to take up space and make community and all of these things like it's completely changed my life I guess like I don't think there's any other way to put it it connects me to so many groups I made a fuck the Tories banner for a group called the outside project that look after LGBTQI plus youth who are not able to live in their family homes. And like, just, I don't know how I would have connected with them in another way. Like they just have this banner now in their community center and it just is so joyous and it's pink and gorgeous. And I think it has about five different types of trimming on it just to be like really extra. So yeah, in, in that way. It feels really human to me. And I love that about quilting, like the quilting and, and knitting as well. There's something deeply anti-capitalist about it to me because you just can't make easy, hard cash from it. It's slow and it's long. And that just feels so radical to me. It feels like such a pushback against everything that I don't want to be a part of. Um, so much of what you just said resonates with my own practice and my own experience. And what I find so interesting hearing from you is that you were someone who already had an established creative practice in calligraphy. Mm. And then you stumble across textiles and mm. it opens up this whole new door and this whole new avenue, this whole new world for you. Yeah. Alice, I think that's it. Oh. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have to say that your snake banner is like the best thing I've ever seen. I love it. It's like deeply, deeply obsessed with it jealous that I didn't make it. Well, see, and that's funny because we didn't even talk about, well, maybe one of these days we'll collaborate on a banner because we didn't even talk about your banners are rooted in social movements. Mine are largely rooted in Southern churches and, and that tradition here in the U.S., which has, you know, in the front of the sanctuary would have like banners with Bible verses. And mm. so I'm drawing a lot from that language and that iconography and things like that. Mm. Well, I guess we'll just have to have a part two to this conversation. What do you say? Agree. <laughs> How much do you love Alice Gap? I've thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. Now, if she's piqued your interest in the radical history of banner making, remember, you can join us live on September 20th, 2023 on The Nook. Just click on the link in the show notes to get started, and I hope to see you there. Until then, take care and sow some good.